Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so get them to join you and work your way through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. For the radio show, we're in the Book of Judges, a book filled with heroes of the faith, warts and all, as Israel cycles between obedience and disobedience, faith and lack of trust, allegiance to God, and idolatry against God. In other words, a book applicable to us today. Right now, we're in the middle of a discussion of Dallas Willard's book, Hearing God. We'd gotten to that tangent from the end of Judges 6. The beginning of the story of Gideon has his commissioning from an angel and then the encounter with the Lord through the famous fleece episode. So both of those were examples where Gideon had heard directly from God, and it leads nicely to this broader discussion of what it's like for us to hear from God. In the previous segment, we talked about the why. Why would we expect God to talk to us, to want to talk with us? And we drew from the logic of that, that it makes a lot of sense that God would establish relationship with us and then develop that relationship with us when we come into right relationship with him, that he would want to communicate with us. And then we drew from a number of analogies in scripture to friendship, partner in ministry, parent, spouse, and the shepherd sheep metaphor that's used quite a bit in scripture to describe a number of relationships that involve communication. So the punchline is that it's expected that God would want to communicate with us and that he does. We close the last section by talking about various mistakes we can make, and the largest of those is deism. Elsewhere, Willard argues that we are practically deists, most of us, that we would never admit to it, but we live our everyday life as if God is not interested in our everyday life. And that's a terrible mistake. As Willard opens the book, Hearing God, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult and in fact presumptuous to imagine that we can get through this kind of life without hearing from God. So what does that look like? So we've covered the why. Now we want to move to the what and the how. So Willard starts this part of the discussion by defining conversation. And his definition is that it's an appropriate, clear, specific communication through conscious experience from God to the individual believer within the context of a life immersed in God's kingdom. And at one level, we smile and think, okay, that's a philosopher trying to come up with a very specific definition, but there's reason for the specificity. He's talking about it has to be something that actually communicates. It's a conscious experience. And I love the last part of it. It's within the context of a life immersed in God's kingdom. The context of a life matters tremendously to what the communication looks like, And then Willard is also getting to the purpose of all this, which is essential for any communication. Why are we communicating? It's for a life immersed in God's kingdom. So Willard goes on to say that communication is also one dimension of a richly interactive relationship 
And then he connects it, not surprisingly, to the will of God and our attempts to follow God's will, which itself requires some definitions and some discussion of how to determine what the will of God is. So Willard goes on to say that being in the will of God is very far removed from just doing what God wants us to do. We can be solidly in the will of God and be aware that we are without knowing God's preference with regard to various details of our lives. So here Willard is running with a more general definition of the will of God or what sometimes is called the umbrella will of God. It's not that God is really concerned with what sandwich I pick out at lunch, but much broader things than that. So in discussing and describing the general and the specific will of God, Willard compares it to his children happily playing versus doing particular things while they play in the backyard. And Willard says, generally speaking, we are in God's will whenever we're leading the kind of life he wants for us. And that leaves a lot of room for initiative on our part, which is essential. Our individual initiatives are central to his will for us. Back to his children, he wants them to have fun in the backyard. He's not dictating or has particular concerns about exactly what that fun in the backyard would look like. And so if Willard's right, that's pointing towards more of a general will of God than the specific will of God. It's not Willard's goal as a parent that Johnny picks up a stick and digs a hole. He just wants his child to have fun and be creative and develop as a maturing child into a full-fledged adult. Willard goes on to say about this, of course, we cannot fail to do what God directs us to do and yet still be in his will. But even if one was to do all the particular things God wants and explicitly commands us to do, one might still not be the person God wants them to be. And in fact, an obsession merely with doing all God commands may be the very thing that rules out being the kind of person that he calls us to be. So Willard is encouraging us to move beyond the nitty-gritty of what we think is the will of God to the larger picture, that it's being a certain kind of person more than doing certain kinds of things. Of course, if you are a certain kind of person, you will do certain kinds of things that line up with the life of God. And if you're not doing the sort of things that God wants you to do, then you're not really the kind of person that God wants you to be. So think about David as a man after God's own heart. Or think about Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the church at Ephesus that was doing all the right things, but their heart wasn't in the right place. They'd forsaken their first love. A lot of times people will say obedience is God's love language. Yes and no. And that's Willard's point, right? That obeying God is, is a part of that. But obeying God and fixating on that is not really the point. The point is relationship. And then obedience comes from that. If you focus on obedience first, it's not clear that the relationship is going to follow. So Willard defines the goal then as a life of free-hearted collaboration with Jesus and his friends in the kingdom, and thus hearing God as it bears upon a whole life in the will of God involves who God wants us to be and, where appropriate, what he wants us to do. Willard provided another example that was helpful to me. He talks about a relationship with a close friend, and he says, if you have that, you'll have an awareness of and a focus on what is important to the other person, knowing what to do and doing it. And then he asked this question, what's better to lend something to someone on request or to bring it to him as soon as I hear the need without waiting to be asked? And of course, the answer is the latter. The better friend is the one who just does the thing, knowing what the person needs, focused on that person. Obedience, so to speak, 
waiting until I hear direction and then responding to it would be a level of immaturity or not knowing what the person needs. My wife and I, our first song that we danced to and a key song in our relationship is Keith Whitley and Alison Krauss in the remake, a song called You Say It Best When You Say Nothing At All. And you got to communicate verbally, but there's a sense in which nonverbal and just knowing the other person well enough that you don't have to speak is much more powerful. And so communication, what's the point of it? The point ultimately is relationship and it involves specific communication at times to let us know what the will of the other person is, or in this case, God's will for us. Willard concludes the example by saying, in many cases, our need to wonder about or to be told what God wants in a certain situation is nothing short of a clear indication of how little we are engaged in his work. If we constantly require direction, that's an indication that we don't know what the Lord wants. And many times we should know exactly what he wants and just take care of business. Just do the thing that we already know God, through a close relationship, would want us to do in any given circumstance. So Willard encourages us to move from communication to communion to union. And he describes this as a profound sharing of the thoughts, feelings, and objectives that make up our lives. It's what we seek certainly in friendship and in marriage, and it's what we should seek in our relationship with God. Willard also spends time on errors in this regard. The first is what he calls big heroic efforts to determine God's will. That's sort of what Gideon is doing here in chapter 6. He gets heroic efforts. He's seeking heroic efforts. There's a time and place for that on occasion, but that should not be the sum total of one's relationship with God or the communications with God. If you think about everyday communications and relationships that we have in our earthly life, if Willard's right, then that's a lot more like what our relationship and communication with God is going to look like. It's not the bolt out of the sky. It's something more subtle and more continual than that. And it's rooted in relationship, not the occasional news bulletin. Second, he would say, it's not a word from God to impose on others. It's not related to that. Sometimes you get a word from someone that you can pass to someone else, but that's not really the focus of communication. In a relationship, communication is between the two parties, and so we should be looking for communication and relationship that are being built between us and God. What kind of communication and relationship building will do that? And then, of course, the largest mistake here is doing your own thing, not being particularly interested in the things of God, apathy, relatively unimpressed, relatively uninterested, or just plain evil, ignoring the will of God, ignoring relationship with God. Willard talks about this at some length. He says, we fully intend to run our lives on our own and have never seriously considered anything else. The voice of God would therefore be an unwelcome intrusion into our plans. If we want to do our own thing, then we're not going to communicate with God about it. I'm not going to talk to the boss. I'm not going to talk to a friend. I'm not going to talk to my parents if I want to go the opposite direction from them. So when we don't want to communicate with God, then that's an indication of where that relationship is. So the good news is here, quoting Willard, even while dead in our sins and unable to interact constructively with God, we are still capable of sensing the vacuum in the natural life apart from God and of following up on the many earthly rumors about God and where he is to be found. Once the new life begins to enter our soul, however, we have the responsibility and opportunity of ever more fully focusing our whole being on it and wholly orienting ourselves toward it. This is our part, 
and God will not do it for us. And that's God's provision in our participation. And in fact, that's what relationship looks like. It's not all God. It's God's grace, but we have to participate in that grace. And part of that is communication and building the relationship. Now, how to do that? Willard has much to say on that as well, but for now we need to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're getting toward the end of a tangent on Hearing God, a great book by Dallas Willard. And the tangent began after Judges 6 when we talked about Gideon and twice that he hears from God. And I've used Dallas Willard's book as a springboard to talk about should we expect to hear from God. And Willard argues in the why part of his book that yes, we should. In fact, it's ridiculous not to expect God to try to communicate with us. And we have lots of examples and metaphors in the scriptures that back up that view. The second part of his book, and I covered this in the last segment, is defining what that communication would look like. What would its purposes be? And there we got into a discussion of God's will, his broad and his specific will, and the idea of communication as part of relationship and as distinct from but correlated with obedience. That obedience is part of a relationship like this, but it is not certainly the sum total of it. In fact, relationship leads to obedience more than the latter. So sometimes you see an overemphasis on obedience without the relationship, without the communication, as if the Bible is simply a rule book, for example. And God is looking for a lot more than that. And communication, hearing from God, is a key part of that. Jesus came in the flesh. The Spirit lives within us. God wants to communicate with his children. So the last question that remains is how to do it. We've covered the why. We've covered the principles. But what are the particulars? What can I give you practically that will be helpful to you? If I were to give you a top four, it would be the Word of God, the circumstances of life, the counsel of godly others, and the Holy Spirit. Another key principle is the idea of the still small voice of 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. And so that points to the need for solitude and silence. We need that to study God's Word, to understand the circumstances, to listen to others, and of course to listen to the Spirit. Now, we would expect this communication to come in many ways and many forms appropriate to the complexity of human personality and historical context. And in Scripture, we see something like that. We see dreams and visions. We see the Lord appear through a phenomenon and a voice, and sometimes as an appearance, sending a messenger, or what's called a theophany, an appearance of the divine. But those are relatively rare, even in Scripture, especially with the well-developed Word of God, God speaking to others and through them to us. And then this inner voice through the Holy Spirit speaking to our spirit and our conscience, that's going to be the typical way that this occurs. And so Willard argues then that the word is the primary objective method by which God communicates with us. And the spirit is the primary subjective method by which God communicates with us. And then quoting Willard, both most fully engage the faculties of free, intelligent beings who are socially interacting with agape love and the work of God as his co-laborers and friends. Back to the purpose of all this, the communication is not just for its own sake or even just for relationship, but for us to be in partnership as co-laborers with our loving, gracious, purposeful Lord. 
And so the communication that fully engages the faculties of all that we've been given by God would be the Word and the Spirit. Now, the scriptures speak to this quite a bit. For example, Acts 16, 6 through 10, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So it's not exactly clear what happened, but twice the Spirit would not allow them to. We might call this closed doors. They had some sense that that was not what they were supposed to do. And then that's accompanied by a vision which positively states where they're supposed to go. The Spirit had provided the negative and the vision provides the positive. Or think about the gifts of prophecy and tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, both of which have to do with God speaking to people. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How do we get the mind of Christ? Well, most commonly through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Could that be the word of God only? It's hard to imagine that if we're looking for the mind of Christ. It's not simply an intellectual pursuit. The Spirit is going to help us, empower us, inform us, teach us. The Counselor will teach you all things, lead you in all things, Jesus told us. One of the problems that pops up here is you might be thinking of quoting Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that's true enough, but does God want to leave us there? Surely his purpose is to transform those thoughts. And we have evidence of that in Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Back to 1 Corinthians 2, to have the mind of Christ is to go beyond the earthly, worldly thoughts that are being critiqued in Isaiah 55 and to get in line with the renewal of the mind, the transformation of the mind that Paul is talking about in Romans 12 too. Or getting even more basic, think of Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Surely there's an end to that. Surely there's a growth and a process by which we communicate with God, we hear from God in a way that allows us to increasingly have the mind of Christ, to love the Lord our God with all of our mind increasingly, to be increasingly transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can increasingly test and approve what God's will is. God doesn't want to leave us where we're at. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, on the idea of conversation, another key idea is the distinction between prayer as an event and prayer as a lifestyle. So we often pray, say, before a meal or in a worship service or when we're in a difficult moment at a hospital room or something like that. That's prayer as an event. But scripture also talks about prayer as a lifestyle. Pray continually, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Prayer as breathing, prayer as an everyday conversation. If you think about prayer as an event, we're mostly talking to God or at God in a worst case scenario. It's not talking with God very much, if at all. 
Conversation implies a back and forth, a talking to God, a listening to God through his spirit or through his word or something else, by just walking through day-to-day life, listening to the spirit. There's a role for the study of God's word and the power of that. I'm a huge believer in the power of the word of God. But every day when I'm walking down a sidewalk, I'm not looking at a Bible. When I'm getting ready to teach a class or I'm in the middle of something that's not going very well in my classroom, I don't have time to look at the word of God. It's going to be a conversation with God in that moment. It's going to be the spirit inspiring and informing me what to do. James Dobson had a prayer that Willard cites, and it's, Lord, I need to know what you want me to do, and I am listening. Please speak to me through my friends, books, magazines I pick up and read, and through circumstances. And that's exactly the sort of thing we're talking about, that God is going to speak to you through everyday circumstances, through his spirit, and of course, through his word. Now, one of the difficulties here is how do we recognize God's voice as opposed to our own and sin nature? or the devil's voice, frankly. And Willard, I think, is helpful here. He said a few things that I had not thought of before, but really rung true to me, that there's a certain style or spirit. It's hard to describe when God is speaking to you through the spirit, but I think Willard is right that it has a certain weight or authority. He quotes Stanley Jones on this, and I'm going to paraphrase, but basically he says that our subconscious will argue with us and try to convince us, but the spirit only speaks and is self-authenticating. It speaks with an authority that our conscious does not. And on top of that, it is full of peace, confidence, joy. It's reasonable and full of goodwill. And that's been my experience as well. I think that's a great distinction that when something is trying to convince me from within, that's not the spirit. The spirit just speaks on authority and says, this is the way it is, or you should do this, or ease up a little bit, or whatever the instruction is. And it's just said with a peace and an authority that is difficult to explain. So I think that's helpful in distinguishing between the spirit speaking to us and whatever other noise is going on in our heads. Of course, it's not just style, it's substance. And that's where knowing the word of God is so important that when we get counsel from that still small voice, it needs to line up with what we know of God's word. And if we don't know God's word, how are we going to make that sort of comparison? So listening to the spirit, comparing it to God's word where appropriate, and then making the decision to follow, obey, etc. It's a conversation. It's an encouragement to do a certain thing more than a command. I guess you could think of it as a command, but it's what's in our best interest to follow along, to be in partnership with the Lord through his spirit, communicating, conversing with us. As for reading the word of God, there's differences between reading and studying. There's a place for both. We need to read to know God rather than to know stuff or even commands, but the top priority would be to know God. How do you do that? Well, in part, you read by putting yourself in the story. You read what is in there and what is not in there. You read in order to submit rather than just looking to accumulate mere knowledge or playing some sort of cafeteria game, making God in our own image, picking and choosing the things that we like. In fact, it's the things we don't like which should more get our attention. And then just to be super practical, read the Gospels a lot. Look at how Jesus interacted with people if we want to be more Christ-like. Putting ourselves in his shoes and the people he's interacting with will be immensely helpful. Two brief examples to close this out. I wouldn't have married my wife without what we're talking about. I felt led to date her. It didn't make any sense because she was a new Christian and I was a mature Christian. But the Lord kept pressing on me to pursue her. 
and I sought godly counsel. And a good friend of mine said, where's that in the Bible that you can't date someone like that? I couldn't find it. I couldn't think of any good reason. She said, well, if you're feeling that leading, then pursue it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no problem with it. So you can go ahead and pursue it. Second example is I would not have read Hearing God without the exact same formula we're talking about. A friend of mine mentioned reading it. I happened to be studying Gideon at the time. It occurred to me that hearing God would be a great topic. I've loved Dallas Willard's books in the past, and here we are. The Spirit prompted, life circumstances worked out. God spoke to me to read this book for it to be a part of my notes in Judges 6 to share with my Bible study, to put on the radio, to put on the podcast. Lord, I thank you that you want to communicate with us, and I pray that we would put a lot of energy into communicating with you, learning what that looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous three segments, I covered Dallas Willard's book, Hearing God. There he talks about why we should expect to hear from God, what that would look like, how to define it, and then how to do it. And if you didn't catch those segments, I definitely encourage you to do so. It's such an important topic. Two final quotes from Willard I want to use just to whet your appetite. First, he talks about Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 and the washing of the word. It is pictured as washing away the impurities and clutters that have permeated our human personalities during our life away from God. Just as the water and laundry soap move through the fibers of the shirt material and carry out the dirt lodged within those fibers, God's word pushes out and replaces all that is false. So I like that picture of what God's word can do for us. And then on the goal of the entire topic, conversing with God, hearing from God, the point of it is faith, trust, and follow. And Willard talks about Luke 7, 9 and the faith of the centurion. And the idea is just give the order, just say the word. He's listening to the voice of Jesus and he has great faith. And so you can see the implications of that for his life. And Jesus is blown away by that great faith and says so in that moment. Willard concludes, great faith, like great strength in general, is revealed by the ease of its workings. That we look at the centurion and we and Jesus are marveling at his faith because it just seems so easy for him. But that's available to us as well, increasingly, as we give in to the process of sanctification, as we live and walk and listen to God who is trying to speak to us. Now, Hearing God sets the table for Willard's two other excellent books in this trilogy, Spirit of the Disciplines and The Divine Conspiracy. And so if you've not made the investment of Willard yet, I'd strongly encourage you. They're all excellent. They've all been life-impacting books for me. So that three-segment tangent followed Judges chapter 6. Let's do a bit of review before we get back to the text. In chapter 6, we were introduced to Israel's problem, the Midianites, but before that, it was that they had strayed from their faith in God and had embraced idols. We're also introduced to Israel's deliverer, Gideon. He is found at work in quiet. He's faithful in the little things, and he's used despite a struggling faith, including God's multiple signs. He heard from God, but it wasn't enough. Gideon's faith continues to develop throughout this passage, but he clearly has a faith that struggles, and so that can be an inspiration to us. He's obedient in a big trial with his father and the Baals. So Gideon's problems so far have been external and human, the Midianites, 
and familial combined with fake supernatural, dad and the Baals. Now we're going to get to another test of faith. Warren Wearsby says a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. It's also interesting that God had been tested by Gideon, so to speak, and now God returns the favor and will continue to test Gideon. Now, why do we have tests of faith? Well, they show our faith to ourselves and to others, and they also strengthen our faith. So it's not just his test of faith, it's also in the context of his internal struggles with faith, and it's going to be applied to a significant problem within his calling to deal with the Midianites. And so we'll see how that unfolds in Judges chapter 7. I'm actually going to start with verse 12 to set the context. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And then back to verses 1 through 3. Early in the morning, Jerob, Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. So verse 12 helps us with the scope of the problem facing Gideon and Israel. Verse 1, Jerob Baal is a name he was given in chapter 6, verse 32, when he had contended with Baal, his father's idols, in that great episode. And this name should give him great confidence as well as them. He is someone who had contended successfully with a god, a supposed god, and what turns out to be an enemy. But verse 2 is quite the surprise. You have too many men. And the same thing's going to happen in verse 4 in a sequel to this part of the story. Now, it's interesting and ironic that Gideon is now ready to attack. He's been so tentative before, but now he's told to wait. And again, is God testing Gideon because Gideon tested God at the end of chapter 6? I think that's an interesting and provocative thought. Maybe we ought to be careful with our attempts to test God and ask him for fleeces and such things. The first selection criterion here is fear. Are you fearful or not? And of course, this is eminently reasonable. It's also in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 4 says, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Then verse 8 says, And the officers shall add, Is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. So they have good reason for fear here in Judges chapter 7, verse 12, and quite a few of them are responding to that fear. Now, what is there to say about this criterion? Well, as Deuteronomy 20, verse 8 alludes to, these soldiers have no business being there. Fear is contagious. Just as a practical matter, imagine sending a platoon into battle and the platoon melts away with fear as people run away. This is terrible for morale, and it's terrible just for regular strategy. If I don't know how many soldiers I'm really going to have in the fight, it's not going to work very well. 
Beyond that, why is fear so troubling? Well, fear focuses on one's own resources and problems versus God's power, strength, and love for us, his promises that he had given Israel. It's interesting to think maybe Gideon was supposed to have done this on his own earlier and hasn't done it. He hasn't followed the law. Maybe he was thinking he had too few men and maybe he settled for whichever men volunteered. And we have to be careful of that. You don't just throw the net open and say, hey, who wants to help out? You get people arising with mixed motives, mixed skills, etc. There needs to be an accounting and figuring out what you have. And Gideon was supposed to do this through the law, but it looks like he hadn't done it or hadn't done it seriously enough because 22,000 of the 32,000 are leaving at this point. It's also a great emphasis from God on voluntary. We see this from Genesis 3, 4, the emphasis on free will, that God doesn't want a bunch of robots. He wants us to make the decision voluntarily to submit to God. Now it begs a question, why did they come in the first place? Maybe there was fear of God and others, some sort of negative peer pressure. Imagine in a shame or honor culture that you don't volunteer. Even in our own setting, there would be some shame for not volunteering for such an important task, but especially in that culture, it would have been much more profound. And so when there's that sort of pressure perceived from God and or society, it comes off as semi-coercive. It's not fully voluntary. Or maybe there was some positive peer pressure, merely the excitement of the moment. People get geeked up and decide, yes, I'm going to do that. Or maybe their decision was legitimate, but now seeing the task in front of them, the Midianites in front of them in verse 12, maybe they expected more Israelites or fewer Midianites, or they just counted the costs a little too late, and they're disheartened by seeing the seeming impossibility of the task. To cut them some slack, there's a difference between Israel being successful because God has promised and that I'm going to survive this battle. Those are not the same thing. And so maybe looking at the cost, they decide, I don't think so. I don't think I want to be involved in this. Even if I think the Lord's going to deliver Israel and crush the Midianites, I'm not sure I'm going to make it through the battle. And so I'm going to chicken out. Another part of the context is to think back through their history and the years of oppression that they have faced, which leads to a fragile spirit. Given the lack of faith they had, the battle that lies ahead, even 10,000 men is actually impressive. So the fact that a bunch of people melt away in this context, given the strength of the enemy, given the fragility of their faith, it's not all that surprising. As an economist, we talk about what's called the free rider problem. What does everyone want? Well, they want to win the battle. They just want other people to bear the costs. And so you could picture them using this fear as an excuse to get out of the battle. They want victory. They just don't want to participate in it if it's going to cost them anything. And there are so many applications to this. We want the church to be successful, but do we want to chip in some money and time? We want this organization to go forward, but we'd like to keep all of our money and our resources. So the free rider problem is a significant issue and may well be rearing its ugly head here. Regardless, they missed out on a glorious opportunity. And that's the case as well. Ultimately, if God is deciding that this is the way forward, then you get on board with that and the glories that go with that, or you don't. You walk in fear, you walk in faith, you trust the Lord, or you don't. He's called you to something, are you going to get on board? Back to Willard, are you going to hear from God? And if so, what are you going to do with it? Of course, faith, trust, 
obedience follow. Do the right thing. Do the thing that's in your best interest. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered Judges 7, verses 1 through 3, where Gideon starts off to deal with the Midianites. He's got 32,000 men, but God tells him to use fear as a criterion, and then the force is reduced to 10,000 men. That takes us to verses 4 through 8. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. So the end of the passage points forward to where the action is going to get rolling. But the most interesting thing about verses 4 through 8 is this second selection criterion. From the Hebrew, apparently, it's not exactly clear what is happening here. And so various translations do different things with this. And there are different commentaries who have different interpretations of what's happening here. So let's go through what we have as best as we can understand it. Is it about squatting rather than kneeling? Is it about using your mouth rather than hand to mouth? Or perhaps it's an arbitrary distinction to get the numbers down and maybe even looking for unity. The 300 people who do the same thing are the ones who are going to be chosen. And it turns out here there are only 300 of those who are lapping the water in the manner that's being described here. Maybe it's that the others are more on their feet, ready for action, their heads up, even though it's less efficient at obtaining the water. Or maybe they're keeping their eyes on Gideon or dot, dot, dot. We don't really know exactly. It's also interesting that they're not informed this will be a test that the actions are revealing their hearts, or again, maybe it's just an arbitrary distinction to get the numbers lower. It's also interesting that verse 4's 10,000 men was the size of Barak's force in the story with Deborah back in chapter 4, verse 14. In any case, the bottom line is that the 32,000 soldiers of verse 3 have been reduced to the 300 men of verse 8, and that's less than 1% of what he had just a few minutes ago. All of that is to face 135,000 Midianites. But Psalm 33:16 tells us that no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. And the implication is that God is in charge of the victory. 135,000 men are not going to be sufficient to beat 300 if the Lord is in the battle. Deuteronomy 32.30 says, How could one man chase a thousand or two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? And so if you look at the math, if you're a literalist here, it's interesting that you would only need 27 people to deal with 135,000 if it's what Deuteronomy 32.30 gives us, that it's two per 10,000, if you want to do the math on that. So instead of 27 troops, Gideon actually has 300 which is more than 10 times what he's going to need to be successful. Now, why? 
while God explicitly wants smaller numbers to promote his glory and his provision, back to what he had introduced in verses 2 and 3, practically with the fearful gone, he doesn't need to reduce the numbers, but with the fearful gone, these are the sort of people who imagine that they can get the job done. And so that presents another problem that maybe pride and independence are going to be a concern. This is going to be God's provision, but their participation God just doesn't want to give them a victory, but to teach them trust and not to lead into pride and self-glory and self-independence. Knowing that God was essential for the victory, this would promote dependence on the Lord rather than self-confidence. God wants our dependence to be on him and our confidence in him, not our own strength. Donald Campbell says, when the odds are overwhelming, God overwhelms the odds. And then he quotes Gary Enrig, who I've quoted quite often, You cannot be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. And so that seems to be God's concern here. This is a lesson to the previously fearful and proud among the Israelites, that the fearful need not have fear and the prideful have no reason to have pride. Beyond that, there seems to be a practical element, at least with what follows here, that there are too many men for God to deliver at least given the plan that he's going to use. His plan only requires 300 people, and 10,000 is simply too many men and would get in the way of how he wanted to do things. G. Campbell Morgan describes this as an elect remnant with courage and alertness, and he concludes the work of God needs more quality than quantity. These are the cream of the crop who participate in the battle, Or, again, if it's just a random 300 out of the 10,000, these are just those who are privileged with the opportunity to step up. Now, why 300? Well, it'd be easier to coordinate that. And in chapter 8, we'll see some other advantages to only having 300 in the battle. But bottom line is, certainly too many men would change their historical view of the battle and the soldiers. It would move it from faithful men and a powerful God to an emphasis on awesome and heroic fighters. And that's not at all what God is after. If they didn't get to 300, it's interesting to consider, would there have been a third test? Or maybe they'd simply redo the fear test again. When there's so few people, maybe more would have emerged as fearful and that would have gotten us down to the number of 300. Bottom line, Matthew Henry says, God saw fit not to make use of all that offered themselves willingly to this expedition. And that's noteworthy. It's often the case that God used the weak or the few, but here we have the only record I can think of in scripture of God turning down some who were interested in going to the battle. Now what's missing in all this? We have no response from Gideon, whether from faith or fatalism, we have no record of his thoughts here. He probably thought there were too few going into the selection process, but to his credit, I think, he just does it without complaint or question. Martin Luther says how difficult it was for him to fight the enemy at those odds. If I had been there, I would have messed in my britches for fright. So some colorful language from Martin Luther there, but I think we can put ourselves in that position and try to imagine how crazy this would have seemed. We've been critical of Gideon for his lack of faith and his need for signs, but from all evidences here, his faith is quite impressive. Maybe he's really encouraged that only God can win the battle. He knew that with 32,000. He knew that with 10,000. He knows it with 300. When God is setting it up this way, it is obvious that God's going to work a powerful miracle. And so maybe in a strange way, Gideon is actually encouraged by the move from 32,000 down to 300. All right, let's move to verses 9 through 11. 
During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. So verse 9, the command is to attack that night. So don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. God's promise should engender confidence, and so it's time to act on the confidence that God has instilled. But really interesting, verses 10 and 11, unless you're afraid, and if so, you can go down to the camp for another sign. Now, every time God's given a sign, he's expected something from Gideon. So this introduces an interesting dilemma for Gideon, but he decides to follow through and see what the sign is. Verse 9, the command is followed by the caveat in verses 10 through 11. I think that's just really interesting. And we see another example here of God's grace, and not just grace, but prevenient grace, anticipating and allowing for Gideon's recurring struggles with fear. R.C. Sproul says it's not condemnation for a lack of faith, but a prescription for erasing doubt. He allowed Gideon to decline the sign, so there's free will exercised here and choosing it or not. He allowed him to take a servant, and the method God chose here would pique Gideon's curiosity. It almost begs him to go and check out what the sign is. But this sign would require stretching of Gideon's faith. Gideon didn't ask, and God dictated the fleece details this time. And whereas Gideon took 10 servants in chapter 6, verse 27, now he only takes one. The bottom line here is it would require risky rather than timid steps of faith and effort and participation on his part going into enemy territory. All right, let's go on to verses 13 through 15. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this could be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So here we have the dream and interpretation by a non-Israelite. So the most famous examples of this are Israelites, Jacob, Joseph, Daniel, Joseph, the father of Jesus, and so on. But there are some notable examples for non-Israelites, Abimelech, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Pilate's wife. As per Willer, dreams can be deceptive, so they've got to be weighed against God's word. But that's no problem here. God has set this up, that it would be an encouragement directly to Gideon. And it's interesting that dreams typically come in times of darkness. Darkness as a metaphor is troubling, but typically the dreams come in darkness. And so God can reach us in our darkness through his dreams and other methods. Verse 13 opens with Gideon and the servant arrived just as all this unfolds. So it underlines the providential timing of all this. Verse 14, Gideon is known by name and the man sounds both emphatic and fearful. It's a miracle that they would know his name with so little prominence. God put the dream in his head. Why not the name too? It's part of God's providence that he utters the name of Gideon. Verse 13, a small detail is the small soft bread, not something powerful. And it's going up against a tent, something that's bigger than a dinner roll, but ultimately not that strong. Verse 13 refers to a force, and that's from God. When God wields small things, they can have great power. Think of David and the five small rocks that fell Goliath. 
Verse 13, a reference to barley, which is half as valuable as wheat. So that's interesting. It's what poor people and animals ate. And it's indicative of the poverty to which Midian had reduced them. It's also a fitting symbol for Israel's inferior size and military strength. And the reference to tent would also be indicative of the nomadic life of the Midianites. Then verse 15, Gideon hears the dream's interpretation, and he now knows. His response, he worships God immediately, and then this influences his confidence and leadership as he returns to camp. There are a few more things to say about this passage, but we'll have to leave those to the next episode. For now, let's go back to Willard's book, Hearing God, to close things out. Gideon has heard from God, and it changes everything. Gideon had put himself in a place to hear from God. He listens, he obeys, he follows, he trusts. And the same should be true for us. We need to get ourselves in a position to hear that. Even with the struggles of Gideon, we know that God is still patient with our struggles in faith. But we need to put ourselves in a position to listen to God, to hear, to increasingly trust and follow. Lord, we thank you for what we see in Gideon's life and his back and forth, the growth in his faith, your patience with him. We pray that we would rely on that, your goodness and greatness, as we seek to follow you, to trust you more in the days to come. Lord, we thank you for all that you give us in the name of Jesus. Amen.